but we're also going to talk together about what we can do to make life better, and not just for us, but for everyone. Now, I uh, also run a chapel service at 8 o'clock, and uh, I'm preaching the same or a similar series in, in there. A little shorter service, different format. Um, but I told them that at, at, for this series, I was going to come up with the worst preacher jokes to kick off each sermon that I could find. So we started that this morning. Uh, I'm going to share one of those with you as well. I have two requests. One is that as a result of this series, I would, actually, I would just absolutely love to know which joke you think is the worst one. Uh, I'm going to start with one today that I think is just going to kind of inch us, uh, ease us into that process. Um, so if you would just let me know throughout the course of the series which joke you think is the worst one. Also, if you would laugh at them, it would make my whole, like it would make my whole year. So um, I'm going to throw that at you. The scriptures are holy. Before we consider them, we should pray. Let's do that together. God, we are grateful today for the opportunity to learn, worship, serve, and to grow. We're grateful for the opportunity to learn more about who you are and who you're calling us to be. So we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits that we might hear what you would have us learn today. This we ask in your name. Amen. All right. I apologize in advance, but here we go. All right, so there is, a, there is this woman. She's married to a man named Steve who's really annoying, like, like just over the top. Steve's annoying, right? Um, and Steve has this, he has this mule. From time to time, he'll take his mule into town. Sometimes he'll take his mule down to the creek. But Steve has this propensity to just complain to everybody about everything. Nobody is right except for Steve. Everybody else is always wrong except for Steve, right? And so he's just complaining all the time, and not just to all the people he's around, which is why he's so annoying, but also to his mule. He's complaining to his mule, who doesn't even speak English, but eventually gets so annoyed with the amount of, you know, just the degree of complaining and the fact that Steve always thinks that Steve is always right, pushing Steve's opinion on everybody else all the time. Did you catch that? And then, so he's, he takes his mule out to the uh, creek one day, going down to the creek. Don't know why. He didn't know why, because he was just complaining the whole time. Forgot what he was supposed to do. You ever walk into a room and like you forget why you walked into that room in the first place? Gets down to the creek. Can't even remember why they went there, because he's been complaining so much. The mule has had enough, so he kicks Steve and starts kicking him to the point that Steve dies. That's not the funny part. Then you go to, they, they you know, get ready for a funeral. His wife coordinates the whole thing, right? Have a funeral. The whole community is there. Um, they're standing there, you know, we've got Steve um, in the uh, coffin sitting up at the front, and the casket sitting up at the front, and his wife is like sitting there greeting people as they're coming by to pay their respects. And somebody notices that every time a, a guy comes up to her, she'll like nod her head and, and say yes. And every time a woman comes up to her, she'll shake her head and say no. And so this person's kind of watching this and notices that it kind of happens every time. And he comes up, you know, and after the funeral's over, he said, you know, I noticed something. I just wanted to ask you about it. She said, okay. She said, um, you know, I noticed that when, when the guys came up to you, you know, every time a guy came through, you're nodding and you know, saying yes or something. And then every time a woman came through, you're shaking your head and saying no. And she said, yeah. 
He said, well, I just wondered, you know, what, what were you saying to them? What, what were they saying to you? And she, and she said, well, every time, uh, every, time, this is, every time a guy came through, he would say, hey, I'm so sorry, you know, I hope, uh, I hope you're, you're going to be all right. And she'd say, I'd, I'd look back and say, yeah, thank you, I appreciate it, I'm going to be fine. And then she said, every time a woman came through, she'd ask me if the mule was for sale. You're welcome. I uh, had the chance this week to meet some people from all over the country, uh, all walks of life, uh, at a couple of events that I was able to go to throughout the, the latter part of the week. And as I was meeting with them, of course, they asked me um, what I do. And I, so I shared with them, um, every time I do that, I'll share with people that I'm a minister, United Methodist Church, and they'll ask a little about the church. And I'll, I'll usually um, start talking about the things that I'm passionate about, like the homeless outreach that we do uh, in Stockyard City. Um, I think we served, uh, what, 177 meals, if I remember correctly, this past week, which is almost the, the largest, like two meals away from the, the largest number of meals we've ever served. It's, it's happening a lot. Um, and I find that when I start talking about that, people are very interested. I've, I've also, like I've always found that you don't have to have um, more degrees than a thermometer to share the love of Christ with other people. When you start talking about the things that any community organization, even a church, is doing to make a, a real difference in the world, in the community, people are interested in that because they're looking for an opportunity to do that. I never have any problem um, inviting people to be a part of that because usually, um, you know, like for a long time, uh, Christians have struggled with the awkward feeling of inviting somebody to church, right? We've all talked through that. We've come up with programs uh, to, to get to, you know, help people to be able to, but it feels, for many of us, it feels kind of awkward. Nobody wants to push their faith on anybody. When I start trying to um, talk about the, the outreach just as a result of a what do you do conversation, I normally have people request to join us before I can even get an, an invitation out of my mouth. Um, and so I'm doing, I'm doing that this week and talking with people, um, a lot of people, about all of that. And they, so they asked me about uh, what I do in the, the church and sermons that I preach and stuff like that. They'll, they'll uh, ask to look me up on social media, which is great. That's becoming really difficult. If you're following me on social media, um, you probably have to start following me on the, uh, the professional page that I have. I'm going to start cross-posting there because on my private pages, there's actually like a limit to the number of people that you can connect with, and I, ha I reached that limit, and so I can't take any more friends that way. So if you've been trying to be my friend, I probably do want to be your friend. I'm just not allowed to be your friend <laughs> right now, at least not that way. And so um, follow me that way. But so they, you know, doing all that's happening, right? And they're like, well, what do you, what do you normally preach about? And I'm like, well, um, in short, I spend most weeks trying to find different creative ways to remind us all not to be jerks to other people. That's mostly, most of my sermons are finding some new creative way to remind us all to be kind, not to be jerks to other people, um, to, and they laugh a little bit, and I'll talk about sharing the love of Christ. You know, you know my spiel about that. It's easy for me to get into the proactive, sacrificial, and unconditional love of Christ. I'll talk about being non-judgmental and non-coercive, um, and, and I enjoy doing that. So today, and as I, as I was talking about that, had a number of people who um, also then ended up connecting with us 
through social media. So if, those, if you're one of those folks, know that I enjoy meeting you this week, and I'm glad that you're worshiping with us today. And I'm going to do exactly what I said, I'm get, what I, said I was going to do. So if you have other things um, to get onto today, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're in a hurry, uh, you need to get out of here quickly, the summary of what I'm about to say is, don't be a jerk. This is how I want to do it. All right, so there's this uh, boy named Tommy. And Tommy, um, he lived with his grandmother, right? Um, my dad, so uh, this story, I need to tell you in advance that this story is a hard one to follow, right? Um, it, and so make sure you pay attention, otherwise you'll, uh, you know, you'll, you'll struggle to get the point of it. I know it can be difficult um, to pay attention throughout the entirety of a, a teaching period. Actually, a preview of one of the jokes I was going to use today addressed that, kind, that issue. Um, there's a minister who's, who's getting ready to go into heaven. He's standing at, this is free for you, by the way. The minister is standing at the pearly gates, you know, right in front of him. There's somebody who goes to talk to St. Peter, and turns out the dude is a taxi driver. And uh, Peter's like, yeah, just, you know, looks through the guy's life and gives him like a silk robe and a, a golden staff. And is like, go on in, you know, um, everything's ready for you. And the minister walks up thinking all the good things, and he says, who are you? He's like, this is who I am. He's like, okay, and he starts looking through his life. He gives him like this terry cloth robe and a wooden staff, and the minister, being self-righteous as he was, kind of like, hey, what's going on? I was a minister, and the guy ahead of me was a taxi driver, and Peter's like, yeah, uh, that's true, but we do things based on results here. Um, and while you were preaching, everybody was sleeping, but while he was driving, everybody was praying. He connected more people than you did, Right? So I know it can be difficult to pay attention, try to do that, because it's a complicated story. There's a boy named Tommy, and Tommy lives with his grandmother, right? Um, parents had passed away some years before, so his grandmother's taking care of him. Um, Tommy, like most boys, does, like most kids, really, I mean, he didn't hate school, but he didn't like being at school. To compound his issue with school, however, was the fact that everybody, all the kids, would make fun of him, because Tommy only had one eye. He had only had one eye that worked. Um, my dad used to tell this story when I was a kid about once a year, and I, I probably do about the same thing. I'll tell the story about once a year, too. My kids, I think, have heard this story about as much as I did growing up. Tommy had one eye, and everybody would make fun of him for it, right? So he didn't like going to school. And so he'd always try to find ways to get out of school. Went to a Christian school. Um, it was a small school. Uh, it wasn't, you know, wasn't a large school at all, but went to a Christian school. And so he had this, this morning, he wakes up, and he's getting ready to, to walk to, to class. And his grandma said, hey, Tommy, you know, if you would... Um, buy a loaf of bread on your way home today so that I don't have to get out of the house. I'd really appreciate it. He says, sure. So she gives him some money, but he's walking to school when it occurs to him that maybe he could go buy the bread on the way to school, and that would take just enough time that he would miss the test that he was supposed to have that day. He didn't want to be in school anyway, but he didn't want to take the test. So he's like, maybe I can go buy some bread. It'll take up some time. I'll miss the test. Won't have to be in school very long. I'll lie to grandma about it when I get home. It'll be great, right? And so he goes to buy the bread, walks back, you know, gets the bread, walks to school, and he's walking in the doors, and his timing is just impeccably awful, right? Because he walks in, walks into the school, and as he's going into his classroom, um, it's kind of a, you know, one, kind of a one-room thing, and so all the kids are sitting there, and the uh, teacher had invited any parents who wanted to come for this test to come. And so uh, parents were sitting all the way around, like in chairs around the perimeter of the room. And just as he walks in, the teacher looks at him and says, Tommy, I'm so glad that you're here. You came at just the right time. 
since you're the last one to get to class today, you're going to take the test for the whole class. She said, if you pass, you pass the test, everybody gets to go home early today. But if you fail, we're going to all stay here. We're going to relearn the things that, you know, the test was over. And Tommy's like, oh my gosh, you know, rolls his eyes, kind of like, oh goodness, you know, I don't know what to do, didn't know how to handle things, timing was terrible, but he walks over to his desk, he puts his bread uh, on his desk, and he just kind of stands there looking at the teacher. The teacher's looking back at him. She says, are, are you ready? Tommy says, I, you know, I guess so. So she holds up one finger. Tommy kind of looks at her and holds up two fingers. She looks back at Tommy and she smiles. And she holds up three fingers. Tommy kind of you know, is taken aback a little bit, cocks his head, but he looks at his fingers and he kind of he pulls them all, all together and just raises up his, uh, his hand with all of his fingers together. And she gets a huge grin on her face. And so she looks around her desk and she sees an apple that somebody had brought into her. She takes the apple and she holds it up. And immediately, like without skipping a beat, Tommy grabs the loaf of bread that's on his desk and he holds it up just right in front of him. And she goes, Tommy, that was amazing. You did such a good job. She's like, you got every answer right and even the extra credit. She said, I'm so impressed. Everybody is dismissed. Go home and have a great day. So all the kids, they're a little astounded. They didn't see that coming at all. Neither did Tommy, but they don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. So they just walk right out the door, go on about the rest of their day, and the parents kind of stick around. And the teacher's like, I am so surprised. All the kids are gone. She's like, I'm so surprised. She's like, I had no idea that Tommy was even paying attention in class. She said, you know, we're Christian school, and uh, here recently we've been learning about the Holy Trinity. And that's a difficult topic to, to learn about because it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And so I was concerned. I didn't, I didn't think Tommy was paying much attention in class anyway. Obviously he was, though. Um, so I thought about the, the best ways to try to, you know, uh, communicate this, the best ways to teach it. She said, so I, I thought I might explain the test to you so you'd better understand what we were doing. She said, it started off with me um, holding up one finger to represent God, the creator. And she said, immediately, Tommy held up two fingers to represent that God, uh, our, our creator, had a son, Jesus Christ. And she said, so then, you know, because we're talking about the Trinity, I held up three fingers to, to, you know, signify God the Creator, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? And she said, I, I wasn't sure what he was going to do with that, but then he, he looked at his hand, and he pulled all of his fingers together and held up his fist to, to say that, you know, Trinitarian theology states that God is three in one, that the three are, are one, one being, one God. And she said, that was it. I mean, that was a test. And she said, I was so impressed. I wanted to give him an opportunity for extra credit. So I looked around a little bit on my desk, and I saw an apple. I, took, I didn't think he was going to get this, she said. But I, I took the apple, and I held it up uh, to represent, you know, the, the uh, original sin in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, taking a bite of the apple, um, and the, the, you know, everything that happened in what we call theologically, what we call the fall. Um, and she said he just didn't even miss a beat. He, he looked and he had, his own, he had this loaf of bread. I don't even know where he got it. But he had this loaf of bread and he held it up to signify that Jesus is the bread of life who takes away the sin of the world. She said, I, 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 don't, she said, I, don't, I could never have guessed I was going to come today. I couldn't be happier. I'm so impressed with him and I'm so impressed with your kids. Fast forward to as long as it takes for Tommy to walk home, right? He walks in the door 
of his grandmother's house. And he's there early, not supposed to be back yet. And she said, Tommy, are, are you, uh, you know, why, why are you home? And he said, Grandma, you're never going to believe what happened today. She said, did you go to school? And he said, yeah, no, Grandma, I went to school. She said, honestly, um, I, I, I had a test today, and I didn't want to take it, so I did go buy the bread before I went to school, and I was thinking, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I was thinking that, you know, I'd missed the test. Um, he said, but I didn't. I ended up walking in, like, right when the test started. And he said, Grandma, you know that teacher hates me. She's always hated me, just like all the kids in the class. And I knew, I knew she was going to find a way to single me out, and she did. The minute I walked into the back of the classroom, she saw me standing there, and she decided to embarrass me in front of everybody. She said, oh, Tommy, you're the last one here today. Since you're the last one here, you're going to have to take the test all by yourself. And then she said, if you pass, I'm going to let everybody go. But if you don't, I'm going to make everybody stay the rest of the day. And he said, I, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I knew she hated me, but there's nothing I could do. So I just walked up, uh, set my, my, the loaf of bread on my desk, and just waited for her. Said, I had no idea what she was going to make me do. Said, I, so I'm staring at her. She's just looking at me. And she holds up one finger to, you know, make fun of the fact that I only have one eye. And he's like, so I held up two fingers to say that my one eye is better than her two eyes. And then she smirks at me and holds up three fingers to say that, well, between us, we only have three eyes. So I held up my fist to let her know what I was going to do if she didn't stop. She tried to throw an apple at me. I tried to block it with my bread, and she sent us all home for the day. The weirdest thing. Today we're going to talk a little bit about miscommunication and the propensity that we have for doing one of a couple of things, because this, this works itself out in two ways, all right? So the first is this. It's easy. I, I, at one time, um, I would have told you that I, I thought we were taught culturally to behave this way. I'm not sure that's true anymore as I get older. I think some of this is just a natural human tendency, right? But we have this. It's easy for us to have this tendency to fall into a trap where we think that we are on the same page with somebody else, right? Where we think we're talking about the same thing, but in actuality, we are not talking about the same thing at all. It's easy for us to fall into a trap where we'll, we'll be in a dialogue, right? But because people process the world differently, because people think through things, differently. Because we all come from a, a different cultural background, a different ethnic background, a different socioeconomic background, a, a different ge ge geographic background. Because we don't come from the same places, because we're not all raised exactly the same way, because we're different human beings by design, I believe that diversity is, is a, a God-given gift. It is God's intention to create the world with a tremendous amount of diversity, and that means we don't process things the same way, and we don't always, in fact, I'm wondering lately if we hardly ever start on the same page. And so it's easy. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that I'm talking about one thing, and you're talking about the same thing. Or maybe that I have perceived events to have happened in a certain way, and you perceive events to have happened in the same way. Or maybe I interpret the Scriptures in a certain way, and I expect that you interpret them in exactly the same way. You know why? 
because we'll delude ourselves into believing that there is only one way to perceive events. That if something happened, there's only one way to interpret that. How could, it doesn't even matter what it is. How could anybody else have witnessed an event, heard about an event, and interpreted it any differently than I did? So we assume that a logical, rational person would have interpreted things, events, circumstances, the holy scriptures, in exactly the same way that we did. Because a logical, rational person would do that because we believe ourselves to be logical and rational people. And so if we, interpret, if we witness an event, we read through the scriptures, then we get a certain meaning out of those scriptures or we get a certain meaning out of the events that we process, everybody else must have gotten the same meaning, the same set of events. In fact, we'll often believe that people process the world around them in exactly the same way as we process the world around us. And yet I think that the truth is far more complicated than that. I think that we are prone to processing the world around us according to a series of factors. Things like I just mentioned. Cultural, ethnic, history, socioeconomic status and background, geographic location, where we exist in time, gender differences, Differences in sexual orientations. I think we have a tendency to process the world very differently from other people who are also rational people. So it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking we're on the same page. When in reality, we're talking about two different things. Or we're talking about the same circumstance. Or we're talking about the same set of holy scriptures. But we have two very different interpretations. That's the first way I think it works out. The second way I think this tends to affect us is almost the opposite. I think that we also have a propensity. And I think that this... What I'm about to share with you has more to do with our motivation than it does with anything else. But I think it's also possible for us to actually be talking about the same thing, but approaching it from very different perspectives. I remember sitting in my, uh, my very first seminary class. It was a common thing. Seminary is the graduate program that a lot of mainline ministers go to. It's a master's degree program. So it's usually run at a private school um, because it's a theological program and those are not common in public schools or public uh, universities. So you have to enroll, which is an expensive thing um, in and of itself, considering that ministerial salaries are not among the highest in the world. And so you enroll in that program, very first class in any seminary, normally um, the teacher at the start of the term will say, okay, for whom is this your first seminary class? Just raise your hand. And always, you know, somebody will. It'll be somebody's first class. Um, and because it's a seminary class, one of the things I always liked about that is it usually would take a minute and uh, the teacher, the instructor, professor would lead everybody in a prayer. You know, a uh, prayer for hope, strength, peace, especially if you're going through ancient Hebrew, just the ability to survive that class is usually prayed for. And so they'll do that and that's, that's a nice thing, right? So we did that first, in my first class. But then after that, um, this was a philosophical theology class, and I remember the, the professor, his name was Chris Bozel, he, uh, he, he's fit, he followed that by saying, okay, here's the thing. If this is your first class, your first introduction to seminary, here's what's going to happen to you. As you go through what you're going to learn, 
during your time in this program and in this class. You're going to confront some concepts that vary greatly from what you thought you believed, maybe for the entirety of your life, depending upon how long you've been a part of this faith. He said, you're going to learn some things that seem to directly confront what you believe. He said, you're going to learn some other things that seem to uh, reinforce what you believe. Both of those things were going to happen. And he said, I can't tell you for you what that's going to be. But I can tell you that you will confront. So you're going to learn something that causes you to come face to face with a dichotomy in your own belief system, right? Where a couple of things that you believe don't match up. Or you're going to learn something that is actually different from what you were taught. And as you study it, you may find that what you were taught is not actually even reflected in the teachings of Christ or in the Holy Scriptures themselves. He said, but as you, as you do that, as you do that, he said, I want to encourage you because there's another way that that's going to affect you too. He said, in addition to learning things, as you're going through that process, right, you're also going to encounter other students who are going through that same process and those students come from different places than you come from, right? Different socioeconomic background, different ethnic and cultural background, different geographic location, a different gender, all of the things, right? He's like, you're going to be different than you. And so you're going to encounter people who believe things that are different from what you believe, and they're going to say things that literally make your blood boil. You're going to think to yourself, how can somebody profess to be a follower of Christ and believe that? Because I'm a rational, logical person, and I've read through the Bible, right? None of us, you hear me, how often do you hear me say this? If I ask anybody, any of us, if we think that we're right about everything, we'll all say no. And yet we have this propensity so often to act like we are anyway. We have this propensity to act like, if I said, do you think you know everything? We'd all be like, no. But then we have this natural human tendency to sometimes just act like we, we do, right? And so he's like, you know, when that happens, he said, you're going you're to experience that. They're going to say things that literally make your blood boil. He said, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whether it's because you learned something that either that causes you to confront what you believe. Or you hear somebody say something that makes your blood boil because of how that confronts what you believe. He said, here's what I want you to do. In those circumstances, and this, this kind of blew, blew my, my mind, because I was expecting him to tell us not to get upset about it, and he said the opposite. There's this great um, book called Tuesdays with Maury, read several years ago, that has a couple of good messages in it. One of them is essentially this, that you won't heal from what hurt you until you're willing to confront and experience the emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain that's a result of it. The book essentially says you've got to give yourself permission to, to experience that pain. He said something very similar. He said, I want you to let it boil your blood. He said, so long as, and I believe this too, the way that you're processing that doesn't involve you infringing upon the rights of other people or causing harm. He said, let it, let it boil your blood. And then once that's happened, he said, whether it's because you learned something or somebody said something, use that as an opportunity to confront what you believe. 
Use that as an opportunity to question what you believe. Use that as an opportunity to learn more about what you believe. Learn, use that as an opportunity to be in dialogue with the community, with our community set, or with your faith community, or your faith leader, or with the people that you care about, or with the Holy Spirit, or with the Holy Scripture. He said, be in dialogue about what you believe. Deconstruct that and reconstruct it again, right? He said that because when you do that, you're going to find a couple of things. One is, sometimes when, you, when you're willing to take that opportunity that made your blood boil, whether you learned something, or you heard something and you take that opportunity to confront what you believe after experience after experiencing the boiling of your blood he said sometimes you're going to deconstruct that reconstruct it, and find that you, you still believe exactly what you believed before he said that's okay sometimes you're going to do that though you're going to deconstruct it and you're going to build it up again building it up again looks like um, I've never thought about this, this before. Why did this make me so mad? That's a great question to ask, by the way. Once you're willing, um, one of the issues we have with that process is that we want to say that something that actually made us mad didn't make us mad because we think it's a bad thing to be mad. It's okay to be upset. So when you're willing to acknowledge that, yes, this did, what I learned, what I heard made me upset, he said, use that as an opportunity to ask the question, why? Why did this make me upset? What is it that I believe that caused, me, that caused me to be so upset about what I've learned or what I've heard? And what is what I believe founded in? What is it rooted in? Is it rooted, if it's a faith issue, is it rooted in my understanding of my faith, the teachings of my faith, whether that be from the Holy Scriptures or the words, teachings, and example of Jesus Christ? Am I hearing something interpreted in a way that I haven't heard it interpreted before? And if that's the case, then what is what I believe founded in? Are the things that I was taught, to, if we're talking about faith, are the things I was taught to believe about my faith, do, that, do they not actually match up with the teachings of Christ? When viewed through the lens of the love of Christ, is, does what I learned still hold up? And he said, sometimes you're going you're to do that. And that's a process of reconstruction, right? Then what does this topic look like if I'm, say, if I'm reconstructing it in conversation with God, uh, which also, you know, obviously means uh, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if I'm, if I'm doing this in conversation with the Holy Spirit, in conversation with the Holy Scriptures, which I'm not reading in a vacuum or an echo chamber, in dialogue with my community, and my community has to include voices that don't agree with me. Otherwise, it's not a community, it's an echo chamber. Or my faith leaders. And as I do that, he said, sometimes you're going to reconstruct and understand that know, maybe you believed something that you were either taught when you were young or thought you understood somebody saying when you were young. You know, one of the greatest freedoms you can give yourself in the Holy Spirit is that you don't have to continue to believe something just because you were taught it as a kid. You do not have to continue to believe something just because somebody taught you that something when you were a kid. He said, I want you to take those opportunities to confront that plank in your eye. So that as you do that, you can, he said, when you do that, a couple of things are going to happen. One is that you're going to come out of that process with a more loving heart. You're going to come out of that process with a more loving heart, and that more loving heart that you have is going to do a better job of creating more loving relationships and interactions in the world that you're in. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, 
minister, theologian, who died in a Nazi prison during the Second World War. He was a prolific writer, uh, wrote about a lot of things. One of the things he wrote about were the ethics of Christian community. And so in reading through that, there are, um, there are a couple of things that he teaches that I'm going to paraphrase that my instructor said on that day. Because he said, here's the other thing that I want you to do. He said, consider when you encounter somebody who says something that makes your blood boil. Listen to know instead of listening to respond. There are two ways to use the word know, K-N-O-W, two. And we use it both ways. One is to represent an idea that says I, I control, I have a body of knowledge, right? I know how to set a table. I know how to change a tire. Um, I know the history of the US. I, I, can, I, have, I have some grasp of a body of knowledge. The other way to use it is relationally. I know you. You know me. I know my children. I know my friends. I know my dog. We use that relationally, and we also use it to express that we possess a body of knowledge, right? He said when, when, we, um, when we are in dialogue with someone else, particularly someone whom we could disagree with, particularly someone who said something that makes our blood boil, right? He says we have a tendency, and I believe this is just a natural human tendency. I don't think you're taught to do this. I think it's just normal for us. You'll start to listen to respond. Right? And that means when you listen to respond, what's happening there is you're listening to somebody talk, you may be doing it right now, and you're formulating a response in your head, right? You're looking for the ways to deconstruct their argument so that you can prove to them either that what you know is right and what they know is wrong, or simply that what they know is not right and what you know is not wrong, and those are not the same things. You're listening to respond, right? And he said, instead of listening to respond, which involves using a version of the word no that I don't think is bad, but it's not helpful in this circumstance. Why? Because I'm getting ready to argue with you about what I think you know and what I think I know and which of them has more merit, probably to convince you of something. He said, change that and listen to understand. Because when you listen to understand, you're listening to know someone. When you do that, people will communicate their heart through the subtle language of their emotionally charged speech. One of the ways we talk about understanding that is by talking about reading between the lines. Now, there's great, um, there's, there great, there's great advice about healthy and effective communication that will say, be direct. You know, don't, and it's good advice, right? Don't expect people to read between the lines, be direct. That's good advice. When we're emotional, we're rarely direct. There's usually an undercurrent and an undertone which comes out between the lines. So when you're listening to understand instead of listening to respond, you're listening to know that person. And that means you're going to listen and you're going to listen for what is being communicated about that person's heart through the subtle language of their emotionally charged speech. One of the ways you can do that is by listening and then asking questions instead of listening to respond and presenting an argument that is probably so well constructed that no other logical or rational person could ever disagree with you. Did you catch the sarcasm there? Instead of doing that, ask them questions about what they believe and who they are and listen between the lines. 
for the questions that will help you to know them better. And when you're finished knowing them better, thank them for being willing to talk to you. In doing that, a couple of things are going to happen. You're going to come out of that exchange with a more loving heart, a heart that has a love for other humans who, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, are also people for whom Christ died. Paraphrasing, he says this about community. He says, you know, I, I don't have a hard time praying for people I agree with. I don't. And he's like, I also don't have a hard time praying for people that I disagree with. Because for those people, I'm praying that God will change them so they'll agree with me, right? So that's not hard for me. So what is hard for me is praying genuinely for the people that I disagree with, other than that God will somehow overtake their minds and arbitrarily change them. So I find that difficult until I start praying for things like the hope that those people Anybody, people I disagree with, people who say things that make my blood boil, instead of asking God to change them, I begin to ask God for them to experience God's love in a way that is healing for them, not changing them, healing them, which always involves some change, just not normally in the way I think it should, that will heal them. And then he said that prayer inevitably leads to God reminding me that I am one of the primary conduits for how that person is going to experience that love, rejection, or judgment, whichever of those I bring. And he said, when I begin to do that, and I begin to pray for that, and the Holy Spirit reveals that to me, he said, all of a sudden, I begin to see that person as somebody whom Christ also loves, someone for whom Christ also died, and not because of what they believe. Christ didn't die for me because of uh, my uh, ability or inability to interpret something correctly or incorrectly. That's not why Christ died. That's not why Christ came. And he said, as I begin to see people that way, he says, uh, the love that I have for my heart towards them begins to change and the relationship begins to improve. When you listen to understand, when you listen to know, which usually involves asking questions as a result of listening between the lines, and you thank people when they're done for sharing their heart with you, there's a good chance that you will also, in addition to coming out of that experience with a more loving heart, a more understanding heart, and a better understanding, listen to this, of the people who are not you. You also probably have communicated a love that was not only unexpected, but rarely experienced. It's easy. It's not hard. It's easy to be on different pages and think that we're on the same page. It's also easy to forget that it's entirely possible that even the people who disagree with you have motivations that are similar to your own. Have courage. Have the courage to listen, to know, to listen, to understand, instead of listening to respond. Have the courage to be willing to take the opportunities that make your blood boil to confront what you believe. If you do that, the world around you is not 
going to be a worse place. One of our issues together as a people is not that there are not enough of us taking action. It's that there are too many of us who are taking action, who are self-righteously convinced of our own rightness and are self-righteously convinced of the wrongness of the other. That doesn't mean that there's never a reason to stand. There's never a way to offer aid or help. What it does mean is that the most effective way to do that begins with the process of self-examination and the orientation of your heart to other people. So simply put, a lot of this passage comes down to who are you? When you encounter that person who makes your blood boil, do you want to punish or do you want to heal? Do you want to hurt or do you want to transform? And who is it? If you want to transform and heal, who is it? And where is it that you want to begin? Because there's a good chance, like this passage says, that if you're not starting with yourself, the good that you're attempting isn't as good as you think it is. There is a reason that there is a phrase, and you could finish it for me, that if you don't heal what hurts you, you'll bleed on people who did not cut you. Pray with me. God, we're grateful today for the opportunity to examine who we are in light of the best version of who we can be together. We're grateful for the opportunity to examine how who we are has a direct and an indirect impact. on how healthy we are together. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage and the wisdom. When we encounter someone or something that makes our blood boil, to allow that to happen within the boundaries of not causing harm to other people or infringing upon their rights. To learn enough from this passage to stop telling other people what to do and focus more intently on who we are and the healing that we can step into as we seek, instead of trying to tell others what to do, as we seek to step in to what it means to be a healthy part of the communities that we're in. Give us that courage and the wisdom to follow. In your name we pray.